Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Listening to the Birds, Looking at the Flowers. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, May the 25th, 2008. I wish I didn't worry so much. I might even qualify as a compulsive worrier. On the outside, I'm affable and easygoing, and that's a genuine part of my personality and not some masquerade. My life is also full of God's goodness, many orders of magnitude beyond anything I might have reasonably expected, earned, or deserved. Still, despite a friendly exterior in a fortunate life. On the inside, my engines are always running, and so I worry. I make lists of things to do, like take out the trash for curbside collection, as if I'd forget this trivial chore after doing it every Tuesday morning for 13 years. Only a worrier knows the satisfaction of crossing out something on your to-do list. There's nothing quite so satisfying as looking at those dark horizontal slashes through each item. At night, I find it hard to locate the off switch for my brain, and so I've become a predictably fitful sleeper. My wife calls this whizzy brain, and even though she's a deep sleeper, every once in a while even she succumbs to it. And I'm definitely a clockhead who'd rather be an hour early than five minutes late. If I had thousands of dollars and knew a good therapist, I could probably figure out why I worry. But I don't have either, and so I'm left to my own diagnoses. But that's not all bad. As a veteran worrier, the tapes inside my brain play in a continuous loop and so I've done my share of ruminating, brooding, and wondering about the constant conversation in my head. In fact, I think I have a pretty good idea about why I worry. I remember, remember my grandmother Hildred as a good-natured, cheerful, nervous Nellie. Her little salt box house was as neat as a pin, and she made sure you didn't get it dirty, too. Like many people, my grandmother channeled her anxieties into a smoking habit. My own mother inherited similar traits from my grandmother, but with much darker outcomes that included severe clinical depression late in life. As a teenager, I remember my father trying to quit the habit of biting his fingernails. So, I've come by my worry honestly thanks in part to the random roll of genetic dice and the inheritance of my family of origin. A lifetime of small choices has also shaped my character, bit by bit. I'm sure that in some important ways, my interior psyche reflects the accumulation of these thousands of choices. Powerful cultural forces also feed my worries. In recent years, we've seen just how manipulative and powerful a politics of fear can be.
Our capitalist economy legitimizes greed, creates our artificial wants and needs, perfects advertising techniques that shape our attitudes, and makes sure that money, no matter how much or little you have, is your number one worry. The most insidious effects of capitalism, in fact, might be on those who succeed at it rather than on the poor who fail. A culture of competition and meritocracy makes you worry about where your kid goes to college. Even though you know that your child can enjoy a deeply satisfying life no matter where she goes to college, or for that matter, even if she goes to college. No one is immune from these and other powerful cultural forces. I know that I'm not. I try not to be too hard on myself. Some worry is part of normal human nature. We ought to worry about some things, like how to help Burma where a cyclone killed tens of thousands, or like losing your job on a wintry February afternoon in Michigan when your wife is pregnant, as happened to me in 1991. My grandmother lived through two world wars and a Great Depression. My mother grew up during the Depression. She raised six kids as a housewife, then at age 50 found herself divorced and forced to look for employment with limited job skills. How did they do it? Who can blame them for worrying? No one should imagine that they'll ever be entirely free of worry. The Apostle Paul once said that he was, quote, harassed at every turn, conflicts on the outside, fears within, 2 Corinthians 7, 5. He admitted that he worried about all the churches, 2 Corinthians eleven twenty eight. The early desert monastic counseled Christians to, quote, expect trials until your last breath, end quote. And St. Macarius of Egypt from the 5th century was brutally realistic in a comforting sort of way. Listen to his words. I'm convinced that not even the apostles, although filled with the Holy Spirit, were therefore completely free from anxiety. Contrary to the stupid view expressed by some, the advent of grace does not mean the immediate deliverance from anxiety. <clears throat> but there comes a tipping point when normal worries become unhealthy anxieties. There comes a time when you ought to worry about your worry. It's impossible to generalize exactly how, when, and why this happens. It's been said of pornography, for example, and even of love, that it might be hard to define, but you know it when you see it. I don't know if I worry too much, but I will say this. The very familiar words of Jesus in this week's gospel resonate with something deep in my soul. I wish that I could live in the way that Jesus describes. Jesus offers two words of advice in Matthew chapter 6. He repeats himself five times. Don't worry, says Jesus. Don't worry about your life 
for your heavenly Father knows what you need. Listen to the birds and consider how God cares for them. Look at the flowers and learn from their effortless beauty. Don't worry about wealth like the pagans do, says Jesus. For despite what the advertisers say, your life doesn't consist of your possessions. Don't fret about the past or obsess about the future over which you have no control, but rather learn to enjoy the present moment. While Jesus compared God to a tender father, the Old Testament readings this week compare God to a strong mother. In Isaiah 49, 15, and 16, we read, Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget you, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Or Psalm 131, verse 2, I have stilled and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. These analogies to a parent's care pale in comparison to the reality of divine compassion. The English mystic and Benedictine nun Juliana of Norwich, 1342 to 1414, had reasons enough to worry. She lived during the Black Death that killed 75 million people in medieval Europe. Many people interpreted the bubonic plague as divine punishment, but not Juliana. In her unapologetically optimistic view of life, she believed that God loved every person and that he would redeem every tear. In her book of visions called 16 Revelations of Divine Love, by some accounts the first book published in English that was written by a woman, Juliana wrote one of the most well-known sentences in all of Christian history. It's the perfect antidote to worry. In her 13th vision, Juliana concluded that she was wrong to worry about the sins and sorrows of life. Jesus told her that these trials and tribulations were, in fact, behovely, a word from which we get our word behoove. In other words, even our sins and anxieties are somehow incumbent upon us. They behoove us. They're part of our human story. Despite all the pains that ever were or ever shall be, said Juliana, she believed that God longs to, quote, comforteth readily and sweetly, end quote. He does that by reassuring us that because of the certainty of his boundless love, and here are Juliana's famous words, all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of thing shall be well. And now for further reflection. What causes you to worry? How do you deal with worrying? 
Reflect upon the words of 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7. Cast all your anxiety on God because he cares for you. Or consider Philippians chapter 4, verse 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. <clears throat> For books this week, I review a brand new book by Jeffrey Sachs. The title is called Commonwealth, Economics for a Crowded Planet. New York, Penguin Press, 2008, 386 pages. When I was born in 1955, the global population stood at about 2.5 billion people. Today, it's 6.6 billion. According to conservative estimates, by 2050, 9.2 billion people will populate planet Earth. And in gloomier forecasts, that figure rises to 11.7 billion people. Most of that growth has taken place in the poorest countries that can least afford it. And so, like never before, writes Jeffrey Sachs of Columbia University, we share a common fate on a crowded planet. And that common fate demands what he describes as a shared responsibility. In his previous book from 2005, The End of Poverty, Sachs tackled the problem of the roughly 40% of our world that lives in poverty or extreme poverty. In that book, he argued that the real obstacles to poverty reduction are not so much ineptitude, corruption, and laziness, but structural problems, geographic isolation, overall vulnerability, and rich world stinginess. He chided the United States in particular for its short-sighted miserliness. Our development aid has declined for decades, he argued, because we insist upon looking for the cheap way out. Fierce critics of aid, such as William Easterly, in his book, The White Man's Burden, argued that Jeffrey Sachs simply wanted to throw more aid dollars at problems when such aid has failed in the past. Sachs broadens his scope in his newest book, but continues the same theme. After two introductory chapters, the middle nine chapters of the book focus on three broad obstacles to sharing the world's commonwealth. Number one, environmental sustainability, with particular focus on climate change, water, and species extinction. Number two, population stabilization. And number three, poverty reduction. Our current trajectory is simply unsustainable, he says. If we do nothing, only calamity awaits us. Nor can we expect free markets alone to solve these problems. Our main problem, he argues repeatedly, is not the lack of available solutions, 
but the absence of political leadership, global cooperation, and implementation. What we must overcome is nothing less than the collapse of faith in global problem solving, the cynical disbelief in global cooperation itself. The age of global convergence and cooperation is all the more important in his mind because the age of American hegemony, especially given the disastrous policies of the Bush administration, is over. Interestingly, Sachs does not argue that economic growth like that in India or China is undesirable or unsustainable. It's only unsustainable if we do nothing. Nor is he a pessimist, but in fact an unabashed optimist about the power of science and technology to lead the way. Quote, these burdens are surmountable and at a remarkably low cost. Food production can be increased, diseases can be controlled, education and literacy can be expanded to ensure universal coverage of the young, and infrastructure, roads, power, water, sanitation can be put in place. Indeed, these things can happen rapidly if the projects can be implemented. While in a handful of cases the limiting factor is poor governance, in most cases it's finance. The poor know what to do, but are too poor to do it. Since they can't meet their immediate needs, they also can't afford to save and invest for the future. This is where foreign assistance comes in." End quote. If we can mobilize more financial aid and then mobilize all the many and necessary actors to work in concert, government, business, NGOs, scientists, universities, Sachs is confident that we can enjoy economic growth for all, environmental sustainability, and population stabilization. He points to past successes like the eradication of smallpox and polio, a million Africans now on affordable antiretrovials, and the Grameen Bank founded Mohammed Yudis that has extended microcredit loans to seven million borrowers, mainly women. In his view, persistence, generosity, and enlightened self-interest by the global community must triumph over pessimism and business as usual. The former path leads to an economics for a crowded planet, the latter to certain catastrophe. Jeffrey Sachs, Common Wealth, Economics for a Crowded Planet. For film this week, I review No Country for Old Men from the year 2007. <clears throat> Directors Ethan and Joel Cohen won four Academy Awards for this disturbing study of the depths of human darkness. At the beginning of the film, Sheriff Ed Tom Bell, played by Tommy Lee Jones, reflects that he's been the county sheriff since he was 25 and had followed in the footsteps of both his father and grandfather, who were lawmen. But times had changed, and quote, the rise of crime you see, it's hard to take its measure, end quote. The rest of the film demonstrates that point. 
The simple plot is almost a mere ploy for the Cohen study of human nature. Llewellyn Moss stumbles upon a pickup truck full of heroin, slaughtered bodies, and a stash of two million dollars. Trying to keep the money was a bad mistake, as the remorseless psychopath and ultra-creepy killer Anton wants it back. But does he kill by choice or by chance? People always object to him. You don't have to do this. But he likes to flip a quarter and force his victims to choose. Fate and human freedom loom large for the Cohen brothers. The West Texas scenery and the absence of any music add to the suspense. Nor does the film end in any neat and tidy way. Only Tommy Lee Jones reflecting on the disturbing dreams he started having after he retired feeling like justice did not prevail. No Country for Old Men And finally this week, for poetry, we begin a series of poems by Wendell Berry. Wendell Berry was born in 1934. The poem we've posted this week is called Manifesto, The Mad Farmer Liberation Front. Love the quick profit, the annual raise, vacation with pay. Want more of everything ready-made. Be afraid to know your neighbors and to die. And you will have a window in your head. Not even your future will be a mystery anymore. Your mind will be punched in a card and shut away in a little drawer. When they want you to buy something, they will call you. When they want you to die for profit, they will let you know. So friends, every day do something that won't compute. Love the Lord. Love the world. Work for nothing. Take all that you have and be poor. Love someone who does not deserve it. Denounce the government and embrace the flag. Hope to live in that free republic for which it stands. Give your approval to all that you cannot understand. Praise ignorance, for what man has not encountered, he has not destroyed. Ask the questions that have no answers. Invest in the millennium. Plant sequoias. Say that your main crop is the forest that you did not plant, that you will not live to harvest. Say that the leaves are harvested when they have rotted into the mold. Call that profit. Prophesy such returns. Put your faith in the two inches of humus that will build under the trees every thousand years. Listen to the carrion. Put your ear close and hear the faint chattering of the songs that are to come. Expect the end of the world. Laugh. Laughter is immeasurable. Be joyful, though you have considered all the facts. So long as women do not go cheap for power, please women, 
more than men. Ask yourself, will this satisfy a woman satisfied to bear a child? Will this disturb the sleep of a woman near to giving birth? Go with your love to the fields. Lie down in the shade. Rest your head in her lap. Swear allegiance to what is nighest your thoughts. As soon as the generals and the politicos can predict the motions of your mind, lose it. Leave it as a sign to mark the false trail, the way you didn't go. Be like the fox who makes more tracks than necessary, some in the wrong direction. Practice resurrection. Wendell Berry, The Mad Farmer Liberation Front. Thank you for joining us at Journey with Jesus for Sunday, May the 25th, 2008. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.